ายRight off the freaking bat. Yeah, hey, if you're heckling, I'm playing. I know you did. Um, so when I was asked, I was thrilled to be coming up here, and I was thinking, well, do I kind of do like a best of? Do I do just stuff that's been published? And I decided I'm going to write all new poems. So everything in this book has never been seen. This book is completely a debut. Every poem in here is debut. The only people who've seen a couple of them are some proofreaders, Emma and Raj and David if he wasn't in New York. Um, so these, this one right here, no one has heard these. And even the people who proofread the, yes, um, have not heard the final versions. Um, cover art is of course my own. Inside you have a piece, and that's kind of some of what freaked people out. That was part of the series that blew people away because they had all these eyes just staring confrontationally at people, and people had to make a decision if they wanted to engage my artwork. They chose not to. What Tom left out of that uh, little anecdote is I was supposed to be up for two months. Um, the night of the opening, they asked me to pull down eight pieces, and three weeks later, they asked me to pull down the other half of the show, but leave these eight serene pieces. I'm like, no, 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 no. If I'm coming up, it's all going down. And they kept saying, it's too edgy. We need to transition some of your work off the wall. Transition is now my least favorite word. It's like, you know, Hitler, we're transitioning the Jews to a safer place. During World War II, we transitioned the Japanese to a safer place. I mean, those are the type of words, you know, they think they're saying nice about you. It's an evil word. So enough about that whole anecdote. This is called Watch Me. And if you flip over to the table of contents, it is the story of him and her in 17 poems. So this is actually a concept book. Everything, if you pick up this book, you need to read it from beginning to end because they build. But there's more than 17 poems in here. I've been writing haikus. So there are haikus inserted throughout the book as well. And where, if people know uh, Chris Jarmick, how he has his poem starters. Well, I saved lines that didn't make it into the poems and they are on different pages throughout the book as well, and they all create the story of him and her. So you're going to get about, I think, 11 poems out of here. We're going to start with a quick haiku. She found ways to shine. 
her deep brown eyes lingering, quickening his heart. I don't know if haikus really warrant a clap. I mean, they didn't even warrant being in the table of contents. I mean, they're... (laughs) Well, because you don't really title haikus. And, you know, so... Okay, this is called Eastbound Train. He mentally counted cars by the sound of their jostling couplings as the eastbound train eased past his window. Sea lions agitated from their slumber barked toward their 2.41 a.m. intruder. He projected his spirit self into the number nine boxcar covered in beautiful graffiti. A boxcar transporting his thoughts of guarded love to her doorstep. A boxcar she will hear during the night near her own cold water bay filled with its own wild creatures. Will she think of him when she hears the grinding of wheels on rusted tracks? Will she wonder if this car has traveled from his coast to hers? Will she close her eyes and listen for the rattling of couplings, holding, contracting, releasing, and recoupling? Will she turn her face towards the sound of metal upon metal? Will she sense that his spirit rides the rails, that has been instructed to pass through her, whispering into her right ear, You fill me with desire. Will she remember their conversation about astral projection? Will she have a warm cup of green tea waiting on her porch? Will the door to her heart be ajar? This is called The Littlest Cloud. It's a bedtime story. And it began when I'm chatting with my friend on the East Coast, and we're usually chatting like at 1 a.m. And so she goes, I'm getting tired. Make me up a bedtime story. So what you get here is probably about 85% of what I wrote that night. Since then, I've just kind of tweaked tenses and added a little, little bit. But uh, this just grew organically through telling her a bedtime story. The Littlest Cloud, a Bedtime Story. There once was a cloud, a small, insignificant cloud as clouds go. A cloud that loved watching the humans far, far below. Some days the cloud would become jealous of fog that interacted with the humans, especially the light fog full of big imaginations. This little cloud began to dream. With its dream, it began to grow and grow and grow. When other clouds became rain, she became the cloud which dreamed, refusing to shed water. She, yes, this cloud was a she, and she had bigger ideas than becoming a series of small puddles that little boys and girls could splash in. 
She dreamed and planned and planned and dreamed. Somewhere along the way, she ceased being simply a cloud. She became a she-cloud, a cloud with a gender identity, which no other cloud had ever possessed. She wanted to become human. She wanted to become a full-grown woman. She detested childhood, having witnessed too much pain, too much lost dreams, as the young transform into adult-type people. Finally, after tens and tens and tens of years, she found a way to give birth to herself. She would become a snow cloud, a very special snow cloud. A cloud capable of producing 100 million perfect snowflakes. Snowflakes that would gravitate together in a series of intertwining strings called DNA. These DNA snowflakes would instruct other snowflakes how to become bone, heart, liver, brain, eyes, nose, and soul. Others would become lung, larynx, vocal cords, mouth, and tongue to allow her to talk and sing. Oh, she wanted to sing. More snowflakes would wrap around her core, forming skin, legs, breast, phalanges, and flowing dark hair that draped to her knees. The last of the snow would encircle her, becoming threads, weaving themselves into a long green dress, embroidered with sunflowers in full bloom. Sunflowers so bright and beautiful, no one could ever have reason to feel sad. Except maybe that little red-headed girl who learned to walk through walls while carrying a rusted machete. This was a path traveled by the littlest cloud. A cloud who learned to dream. A cloud who transformed her dreams into reality, becoming a human woman with a voice that could sing. A woman who found her way into his life, into his kitchen, into his bed. But that is another story for a snowy day. Now, the story about the redheaded girl with a machete was one, was a poem that I started after a poetry night about two years ago when Erica had a, a poem around thing. And it became approximately an eight minute poem that is published in that magazine back there. And it has like three of the paintings that go with it. So if you're interested in the machete girl, you'll have to buy the story. My love letter to you, which I found in a crumpled ball under your bed, stained with tears, as read in the voice of him. I would love to watch you sleep. I would love to sit and watch you read. I would love to watch you eat. But I am unsure if I could restrain myself for more than a few days from the need, from the urge to touch you, to read to you, to feast with you.
I will admit, looking at you is an act of feeding. But somewhere, the act of watching, watching only, must end. I know, I know, I know. You enjoy my eyes upon you. You warm yourself within the heat of my attention, the way a cat stretches upon a window ledge, capturing the noonday sun. I see in your brown eyes that you have tribulations, that if we touch, the world you have crafted will burst into flame, coating you in ash. I repeat, the act of watching you, of only watching, must end. Watching without touching is an act of worship, and baby, this atheist does not worship at anyone's feet. True love is an act of participation. The sharing of breath and sweat as we scramble up mountains. Me cubing cantaloupe and pineapple for breakfast as you watch. You going out of your way to find me black licorice ice cream. Me making up silly little love songs to amuse you, sung in my off-key voice. Being amazed when two heartbeats into sync, creating a melody that compels a union of two to dance the dance of primeval. In the morning, if you desire, I will sit across from you at our kitchen table, fasting, while I watch you enjoy your pancakes. I will watch you cut, fork, chew, and swallow. But hopefully, when you swallow that last buttery piece, I will get to taste that final drop of syrup that lingers upon your lips. Okay, now we get back-to-back fantasies. This is called Poison, His Fantasy. I walked up to the bar, ordered my second whiskey, noticed she was drinking rum. She was temptation embodied within a cinnamon scent, beautiful white teeth and huntress hips that transformed men into moths. I sipped my honey-colored liquor, glancing into her brown eyes. My blues lingered with the gentleness of a hummingbird seeking forbidden nectar. I'm poisoned to men, she volunteered, with the confidence of a seasoned predator. <laughs> I'm immune to poison, I smiled. Let me taste your tears. What tears, she responded through puzzled lips. The tears you will shed if you don't wake up with me at sunrise. The tears you will shed if you don't taste my buttermilk biscuits, which I will bake for you from scratch. The tears you will shed when you realize your abandonment issues are self-inflicted. 
intrigued, enlarged her enormous brown eyes that were suddenly sparkling as if filled with a burst of carbonation. She said in a hushed breath, You're a very dangerous man. My hand reached around the back of her head, dissolving into her long black hair, which compelled me to think of Rapunzel. Her hair was thicker and darker than an old growth forest on a moonless night. I pulled her close for a long kiss, saying, You have no idea how right you are. The bar felt silent. Our lips parted without retreat. Do you want honey with your biscuits, I asked. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And we aren't even to the real erotic stuff yet. Cinnamon, her fantasy. She lay nude upon blood-red sheets. She missed the falling weight of cinnamon, the weight of union and motion and gravity, the weight of words spoken and unspoken, the weight of two sets of gazing eyes seeing a singular future. Cinnamon haze fills the space around her, drifting, swirling, undulating, morphing into shapes only visible during dreams. Cinnamon engulfed her until haze and female form became indecipherable, each inhabiting the other's motion. A zillion particles separate yet bonded, sharing weight and friction, sharing speed and slowness, a slowness slower than the naked eye can recognize, until the haze and female form combine in the beauty of scented weight, holding each other in a passionate embrace. their first encounter. He knew he was intruding into her moment. That first day he stood watching her. Enraptured, he mirrored her stillness. At dusk, a crow settled upon his shoulder, uttering a series of warnings he failed to comprehend. Within a blink, she slipped through the earth. Or did she simply walk away. Another haiku. Eyes redirected, catch curve of her swaying hair. Lips curl, reveal smile. The truth of their first encounter. 
Later, he discerned her truth. She had no faith in Descartes' theorem of identity. Her existence was reliant upon being the object of hungry eyes, eager to consume and document her existence. Without watchers who coveted her, she felt isolated from the world, disenfranchised from life, adrift, fearing the earth beneath her feet would swallow her shadow whole. So the next poem in the book is called Chat, and it's six minutes, but I'm only going to read you the last bit of it because it's actually a lead into the poem that actually follows. Good to read that you are writing. Any particular subject? How many lines in are you? Zero. Well, let me throw some water on my face, then we shall seek out inspiration. That is, if you want company, of course, on your poetic journey. That's better. If you could see me, you'd think I was an owl blinking the water from my eyes. Now if you stretch us to chase the sleep away out of my bones and get the blood running. So, what mood of poems are you trying to write? Love and madness, that's an enticing subject. Are you leaning towards someone who is madly in love? Or who goes mad after losing the love of their life? Or someone who snaps and then destroys the love of others? Or someone who keeps her lover chained in the closet so he never cheats on her? What? You want me to add a light bulb to the mix? Now you're in my wheelhouse. How does this sound? They were always at odds, in a cute give-and-take way. She had grown up in a conservative household where love and sex was seldom whispered about. Passion never. Which leads us to the longest poem of the night, which is actually six minutes. And I know, Emma, you hate long poems. So you can go to sleep now, but everyone else will pay attention. And Raj, thank you for your comments on this poem because it really made it sing. So you know what to expect. Yes. This is called Half Light, and it's in three parts. The first one is Sight. She had grown up in a conservative household where love and sex were seldom whispered, passion never. He was a man believing in sight, in seeing his lover in all of her glory. When her Honduran eyes met his Nordic blues, they transported her to a quiet atoll just off the coast of her native land. His words were the green flash on the horizon that foretold the coming of a hurricane. His breathing, the rising riptides. 
He was the force of nature through which she discovered that her body could speak, that it could yearn and twist even as her mind rebelled, wanting to scurry backwards into her cloistered room of rainbows and unicorns, dolphins and howler monkeys. From this hidden space, her mind peeked outward. She pleaded with him not to touch her or even speak during their first night alone, explaining he could watch her in silence. He could caress her with his eyes. In her grandmother's rocking chair, she wondered if this ritual of watched and watcher had been played out by mother and grandmother. Dressed in the thinnest of white linen, she discovered herself quickly aroused by the gentleness of fabric which concealed her body. Her open window invited moon and sea breeze to enter hand in hand, accompanied by the sounds of forest and city merging into a singular melody. He curled up upon her bed, his eyes never leaving her curves. The moon rose, illuminating the contours of breast and belly. The quieter he became, the deeper her breathing. The heavier her breath, the greater her perspiration. The more she perspired, the quicker her breathing, the greater the friction of fabric upon flesh. Quakes and quivers lanced through her body, which hardened nipples that extended towards the moon. The more to find her nipples, the greater her carnal hunger, the deeper her thoughts of hell and damnation. She struggled to quiet her twitching muscles that brailed out to her their need for him to em enter. Thump, thump, thump. Her heartbeat caught. Thump, thump, thump. A large moth attempts to penetrate the moon's reflective light. Thump, 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 thump. She tried and failed to quell her hands, reaching beneath her thin fabric to satisfy her. She wanted to call out to him, Thump, 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 thump. Her muscles tightened and released. She was puzzled by the musky scent, believing it should be the flavor of pomegranates, papayas, and mangoes. Shadow. He was a lover of light and shadow, a visual explorer. He was a shadow chaser. His eyes eager to trace the contours of her breast and belly, the small of her neck and dimpled thigh, the curve of her ankle and misshapen small toe. His eyes maneuvered with the delicate yet deliberate motivations of a tango dancer. He feasted as her expressions shuffled from peaceful to aroused to inflamed. His ears cocked as if he were an owl, hungry to absorb her slightest moans or cry. But knowing she had always muted her outcries of exaltation, just in case her God might be listening. He loved to see her mouth relax, Witness her eyes transform from hallelujah reverence to sinful reproach. 
He wanted to whisper away her guilt as he watched her shadowed body slip into sleep. A half-shared prayer perched upon her lips, rosary beads wrapped around her fingers. Communion. The first time they made love, she turned the lights out, not wanting to see his nakedness swallow her own. Rooted within her mind, nakedness and fornication outside of union was a sin that yoked and united her passion. The first time she filled her mouth with him, she thought of her first communion. Without realizing it, she crossed herself as she swallowed. The first night she allowed him to taste her, her mother's warning echoed through her mind. She visualized her lover transformed into the chupacabra, its long red tongue finding its way into her, causing her to scream. But her screams were not that of a pig being sucked dry, but of prayers released from their captive cocoon, given wings to ascend to the moon. Throughout that first night of real lovemaking, she lost and found her religion, new prayers formulated upon lips bitten red. In the distance, a coyote answered her call. Okay, you're asleep there, right, Emma? Okay. Another haiku. Free-falling heartbeats silently tumble downward, lamenting shyness. Yeah, yeah, it was right. You can snap for a haiku. You just can't clap. Yeah, that's it. Okay, we're kind of on the home stretch here. This is called, My Talk of Love is Putting You to Sleep, as read in the voice of him. You ask if I love you. I say the seeds of love are planted. They await germination. They await the heat of your heart. I want to say, I would charge windmills with you and for you. But you keep me isolated from your secrets, so I leave the door ajar just in case. I want to say, I am the answer to your prayers. I offer no guarantees. Who is to say that fate has not date-stamped us with a short expiration? Separated by 3,000 miles, I watched your words appear on screen. Imagine them emerge from your lips, your voice full of subtle inflections and lovable ticks. I know you bathe within the warmth of my attention, building a plethora of futures within your mind. Most spare us a tragic end that has befallen so many great romances built on quill or pen on paper, or in our case, translations of ones and zeros. I can tell you in all honesty that you have been my muse since November. It's your face I fall asleep with each night. Upon awakening, my first thoughts have become your private domain. 
Yes, the fact of you has physiologically affected my well-being. I welcome your trust which allows me to walk within your captivated mind, a mind I would willingly explore until our sun expands to engulf the earth. Age has yet to temper my actions or caution. It has stripped me of youthful dexterity. If you smile, that smile of a 40s femme fatale, I'd willingly take a road trip to hell and back just to bring you fire to light your cigarette. I know you love to be watched. A quirk I will willingly indulge, but I'm a tactile man, and you have a body worthy of endless exploration. Let me be your Bartholomew Diaz, I will rediscover your cape of good hope as often as you desire. If you tell me to go watch the ocean, but warn me not to get wet, then I'm the wrong man for you. But maybe you need the wrong man to rip away those marionette wires that have tethered you to the minutia of tradition. Maybe I need to teach you how to play otter, that childhood game which expanded my heart. I'll show you how to belly slide down long, grassy hills during heavy rainstorms, sliding over and over and over again until we become a muddy mess, resembling two beings being birthed from earth. If what I have stated are yardsticks by which love can be measured, then I love you. You have grown silent. Then you ask me to tell you a bedtime story featuring you as the main character. My talk of love must be putting you to sleep. So the next poem is actually called Quiver, A Bedtime Story, but you'll have to buy the book to read that one. <laughs> so we are nearing the end. It, it, well, it was one that could push me over 30, but I wanted to be under 30, so it was just, yeah. It, it was there. It was, yeah. And if you want, you can also pay me money, and I will give you a private reading, baby. <laughs> oh, she is touching herself just like the woman in the poem. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is entitled, How Their Quantum Love Story Ends. Earth, number 418, New York City, New York, March 30th, 2027. Their love had reached its bloody end. She had thrusted her grandfather's boar-gutting knife through his chest, pierced his heart that struggled to beat one last time. His lips parted, asked her why, but he knew why. She had always been a drama queen who ended things on her own terms. Anyway, for her, divorce had always been too mundane to an exit strategy to ever consider. Earth number 14, New York City, New York, 
October 13, 2034. Each lacked the courage to leave, each too bitter to flee a sinking ship, each wanting to make sure that the other one drowned. Earth number 15,233, New York City, New York, January 22nd, 2018. When her lips met the lips of her new lover, she had no idea her ex would be in the park, reading and wallowing in the loss of her. Their shared kiss penetrated with the ease of lead bullets separating flesh from bone. His pain howls emptied Central Park. Police searched for what they believed was a rabid dog in need of being put down. Earth, number 792, New York City, New York, February 6, 2019. He stood at ocean's edge, listening to Atlantic's angry roar. Too numb to notice, his tear-streaked face had turned to ice as he chanted his song of death. He wished he could curse her God, for stealing their daughter's breath at birth, for soaking his shoes in his wife's blood. Complications, the doctor repeated, as if he were repeating a litany during prayer, as if these words would give him solace. Earth number 418, Bellingham, Washington, May 3rd, 2077. He'd always known she would be the first to pass, surrounded by their children and grandchildren, who could still bring that twinkle of mirth into her eyes, that glint which telegraphed a private message to him, I am the one you have been seeking. People laughed when we married, me in my fifties, and you trailing by twenty years. We last laughed last celebrating 60 years last month now i hold your hand tell you it's all right you've earned your rest one poem left then a haiku and a rambling writing the cost of their first encounter. The compulsion of never allowing a scab to heal returns him each morning to this place of their first encounter near the solitary birch. It is here where he first stumbled upon her. Her eyes shuddered to hide tears while she stood with the quietness of a statue waiting for the end of eternity. Her memory tugs at the tip of his spine. His throat grows parched. Tumbleweeds could roll from his mouth and not be thought unexpected. If questioned at gunpoint, he could no longer swear to her existence. He even doubted his memory of her cinnamon scent.
haiku. One red petal falls, first drop of floral blood spilt, fate's first bloodletting. And a stanza I always liked, but it just not, did not work in the poem it was in. She named the falcon that landed in her yard ill omen. He called it his spirit animal, his visitation. She cheered when the neighbor's cat got lucky, when it seized the falcon by its neck until dead. Thank you. Poetry Night 